welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Trevor Connor, along with my co-host, the Italian stallion, Velo News managing editor, Chris Case. This is an episode that Chris has been excited to put together for a long time. But since he's leading a tour in Italy right now, you're stuck with me doing the intro. Just ask any tour rider who's frequently burning 5,000 calories or more per day about in-race nutrition, and they'll tell you that it's both critical and tricky to get right. You can spend months getting your legs ready for your target event. You can be putting out the best numbers of your life, and that can all be wiped away by a poorly timed bonk or intestinal cramping during the race. You have to consume enough carbohydrates to keep the legs sticking over when the race gets hard, but at the same time, you need to make sure that they are well tolerated and you're able to absorb them. It's a tricky balance, and it's highly individual. Simply buying the newest, coolest sports nutrition product isn't going to get you there. You have to find what works for you. But just as importantly, you have to remember that in-race nutrition, just like almost all things, is trainable. And while you're out there doing your big weekend ride or hard hill repeats, you need to dedicate some time to training the gut. So today, we'll dive into nutritional training and talk about applying a scientific approach to figuring out your carbohydrate needs and whether you're a fat burner or a carbohydrate burner. Second, GI distress. Some thoughts on what causes it and why intestinal permeability may be a factor. Next, we'll discuss race nutrition and why changing up what you eat on race day may not be your best strategy. Fourth, why most people can only absorb 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour, but we're still recommending trying to get 90 grams. That sounds like a lot, but it's actually only 360 calories, which is still less than what you're going to burn in an hour during a big race. Fifth, the best mix of carbohydrates to improve absorption. Why you need to dedicate time every week to training your gut, no different from the time and energy you invest in training your legs. Finally, we'll talk about any potential health concerns with focused race nutrition and briefly touch on both the microbiome and L-glutamine. Our primary guest today is none other than Dr. Asker Eukendrup. Dr. Eukendrup is one of the most renowned sports nutrition researchers in the world. He was editor-in-chief of the European Journal of Sports Science. He ran the Gatorade Sports Science Institute back when it was the center coaches and team managers were looking to for the leading hydration research. Dr. Eukendrup now has his own company, My Sports Science, and works with Team Lotto NL Yumbo. Along with Dr. Eukendrup, we talked with Katie Compton, the winner of 15 consecutive national titles and a four-time silver medalist at Crossworlds. She's familiar with GI problems during races and shared with Chris some of her thoughts. Next, we checked in with Colby Pierce, at this point our unofficial third regular in Fast Talk. He had some warnings about getting too caught up in traditional sports nutrition products and emphasized the importance of also considering health. Finally, we touched base with Ryan Kohler, the head coach at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Ryan frequently works with athletes on training their guts for their target events and shared some of his strategies. All right, pull out your Swedish fish. Throw them in the trash and get some real sports nutrition, and let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is sponsored by Whoop. 
The thing I found really interesting with it is 90% of the time the whoop strap gets you right. And certainly with me, I average four to five hours of sleep a night. So just every morning would we'll say, you're an idiot. <laughs> I could have told you that. Yes. But there's that, that 10% of the time where it tells you something different from what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. So my initial reaction is, I really know myself, so, so the whoop strap is wrong. But I actually was surprised how many times I then went through the day and went, actually? It's right. It might have been right there. Mm -hmm. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist war and heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released a new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. So two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. So, Chris, I can tell you, I've had a bunch of listeners contact us with questions, and I keep hearing the love listening to your show while I'm out on a ride. Yep. Which actually admittedly had me a little bit concerned. And so I actually reached out to Aftershocks because of this, because I feel I need to promote safe riding. Yeah. And you've been using them for years. I've had them for four years, and I love them because they actually sit outside of your ears. So you can listen to music, you can listen to fast talk. You can listen to what? Mariah Carey is your favorite, right? Celine Dion? Why Rush? do you pick? <laughs> Thank you. We have so many good Canadian bands. Why do you always go there? <laughs> I don't. Dave Coulier? I don't even know who that is. <laughs> Cut it out. Nickelback? Ah, Nickelback. The point being, you can make your Canadian music playlist, which there is some good stuff the beads, out there. The beads. And you can listen on your ride and still hear your surroundings. These headphones don't go in your ears, so you could hear the cars. You could hear what's going on around you, which, for safety reasons, is something we really want to promote here at Fast Talk. And there's the little buttons on there, so you can mute and pause and fast forward and rewind very that's, quickly. That's right. You don't have to stop and pull over and grab it out of your grab your phone out of your pocket. Mm -hmm. All Bluetooth. This episode was sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for cyclists providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks bundles, visit aftershocks.com. That's A-F-T-E-R. S-H-O-K-Z 
fasttalk.com and use code fasttalk. So our guest today, Dr. Oscar Yukondrup, is world-renowned for his sports nutrition science, his, his website that has a lot of um, great content on it. But he's also a professor. He's consulting with a lot of professional teams around the world. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. We've been hoping to get you on for, for quite a while now. And so I'm happy to have you finally on the show with us. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Yukondrup. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I'm glad it uh, finally worked. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's an honor to have you on the show. So thank you. Could you give us uh, just a little bit of a taste of your background and, and your um, both your education and, and some of the work that you've done to, to get you where you are today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I started this many, many years ago as a, as a young kid who was interested in cycling, also a little bit in running, but mostly cycling. That was my favorite sport and I wanted to do something with it. And I was a decent uh, cyclist, but not the, uh, not the best cyclist. But at one point I had to decide whether to go and, and try to become a professional cyclist or do something else with my career. And I ended up at university studying uh, movement sciences, exercise physiology, really. And this was based on something that I'd seen on TV. I'd seen a professional like speed skate, a big sport in uh, Holland, where I'm uh, from. And this, uh, the world champion speed skating was also a professor in exercise physiology at the, uh, at Maastricht University. And, um, this is what I, when I saw that, I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I went to that university. I ended up working with that professor, Harm Kuipers is his name. And initially I worked on projects around overtraining. Then I stayed at that university, did a PhD in a department that had a very strong nutrition background with some big names in the field of sports nutrition. So I learned from some of these, uh, some of these big names, spent quite a bit of time and quite a few studies we did at Maastricht University. And then I spent a year at uh, the University of Texas hmm. in Austin. Yeah, um, that's where I got my graduate degree in, in, in journalism, not in science, but I was down there for a while. Ah, great. Maybe at the same time. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is 97. I was just a little bit after that. Yeah. 2003. Yeah. So after, after that, I, um, I went to Birmingham and Birmingham was a, is a really good university. They didn't have a huge uh, sports science department, but I joined that, uh, that department to set up something in sports nutrition. And we started really small. We didn't really have a lot of lab space or not any lab space when I started. And over the years, this uh, the lab uh, grew and I had uh, more and more people in my uh, my team. And uh, we started to pursue some, some really good questions that a lot to do with carbohydrate delivery during exercise, uh, GI problems. And those are some of the core topics that we, uh, we worked on. So then I became a, uh, a full professor at, uh, at the University of Birmingham, uh, was in charge of a, uh, the human performance lab there for uh, many years. And then I tried something else after that, uh, after that career. We published many, many studies and I just wanted to try something different. So I worked as the head of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute for a little while. 
so based in uh, Barrington, Illinois, uh, and we had labs labs in different places, also labs in Europe, labs in uh, Mexico, but also lab labs, of course, in the in the U.S. at various places. What years were you running the the Gatorade uh, Sports Science Center? 2011 to th- 2014. Great research has come out of there. Yeah, and they, they've um, uh, one of the things I think that uh, that they do really well is is try to communicate the uh, the science and uh, so work together with the scientists uh, and then in the form of their sports science exchange articles uh, make the information accessible for for most people uh, quite readable shorter articles with good scientific and neutral information now after that i started my own company my sports science and uh, that's consulting mostly with uh, with teams athletes organizations companies sometimes and it's advising them mostly mostly on performance and many of the questions i get are around nutrition yumbo visma included in that now Yes, yeah, they're doing fairly well. So yes, they're they're definitely uh, they're definitely part of this. On the nutrition front, we've we've done a lot of really really cool work. I think it's uh, I think part of the team's success is because they've been able to incorporate science at a at a really high level. They've uh, they've found a way to really like translate it and and get the whole team behind it. And this is why. In a lot of sport, it doesn't it doesn't quite work. Even though the ideas are great, it's the execution is is usually very problematic because you have to deal with a lot of people who actually make this thing happen. So in cycling, it's the it's the soigneurs and everyone around the team and the and and the chefs or whoever liaises with the hotels. If they uh, are not behind the ideas or if they don't really understand it, then um, you can have all the ideas in the world, but it never happens. With Jumbo Visma, we really started a couple of years ago, and we we tried to kind of approach nutrition from from scratch, uh, just starting to build from science rather than from what people were used to do. And we we just evaluated what are really the important, the key things that we need to address, and how can we make it easier, and how can we help the riders to uh, to do this and so we had a whole uh, bunch of ideas and started to develop something in one of the sort of major stage races and we tried to feed them according to a plan according to what they would actually need so in theory we calculated what they would burn during a stage in terms of calories but also in terms of carbohydrate and then we had a nutrition plan that aimed to replenish that carbohydrate, make sure that they were in energy balance and not gaining weight or, or losing weight. And we planned nutrition for these stage races maybe a couple of months in advance. We started to work with a, a company that prepared the, uh, the food, a company in Holland, and the food was then shipped to the, uh, to the races. And of course, every rider then is an individual. Everyone has a different energy expenditure. Everyone uses a different amount of carbohydrate. And you really only know how much someone has burned once they've crossed the uh, the finish line and press the button on their uh, computer. So 
at that time, uh, when they pressed the uh, the button, I would receive a message on my uh, computer that they'd uh, finished. I could see the um, the power files, and I could do a calculation manually initially on how much carbohydrate they had used. Then I would call back to the uh, to the team and uh, let them know how the estimation that we did like months before, how it needed to be adjusted because maybe the stage was a little bit harder or maybe a little bit easier. And then they made the, uh, the final adjustments in the evening meal. And that was sort of the start. And the first time it, it really wasn't, it wasn't perfect. There was also a lot of work and a lot of people involved. So then we started to do this in a little bit more detail uh, with two riders in the uh, in the Giro, and quite successfully, and the, the riders really liked it. They never felt hungry. They always felt felt strong. So for them, this really this approach really worked, and they started to trust the system. Um, the other riders soon followed. Um, so in some of the next races, we tried it with a larger group, and now we just do it with the whole team. We've also, we also work with a supermarket in Holland, which is actually a sponsor of the team, Jumbo. And they're developing uh, some software that's called Food Coach. So all the work that I was doing manually is now part of that software, and the software does all the calculations. So as soon as the riders sort of press the, uh, press the button, there's still a little manual uh, step that we'll fix as well. But as soon as we know the, the data from the, uh, from the day, we can then adjust the nutrition plans and the software then calculates exactly how much the riders need to eat. So you, you can often find the riders with their mobile phones in their hands with the app open and the app just tells them how much they uh, are supposed to eat of everything. It, it really seems to work and the riders really believe in it and also the results are there, I think. So I've got to ask a question I'm sure all the listeners are, are wondering about. Is this the sort of app that's going to be available to everybody or is this really just for the, the pro teams, the top riders? Well, my, my, my question would be, is this something that everyone would need? And I, I don't think it is, uh, to be honest. I think this is something, if you're riding the Tour de France, it's worth uh, going into that much detail, counting the calories. But to be honest, for the, the vast majority, even even really good riders, I... I am not a huge fan of them counting uh, calories or maybe do it for short periods of time so you get a good understanding of how much you're eating or not eating. But I'm definitely not a fan normally of calorie counting. In in big stage races, it's a little bit different because there, the, there is so much exhaustion that hunger feelings are completely suppressed. And at the same time, you've got to eat an average 6,000 calories a day. And that, that's a really difficult task. And if your hunger feelings cannot guide you anymore, then you need some other help. And this is where the, uh, the app can, can actually really make a difference. Are these meals prepared and then like, are they frozen and then shipped? Or what are we, what are we talking about? So the app, the app is now developed to this extent that it works for meals in uh, races where chefs travel with the team and they will actually prepare the food. So the food is shipped to the races. So we take our own uh, food from the supermarket to these races. And then we have the chefs that actually prepare it according to the, uh, the app. I see. Um, but it also works in the home situation. 
um, and then it just tells the uh, the riders what to uh, what to cook. They can choose their res- the recipes that they or the whatever they want to be on the menu. They can select from a number of meals that fit in with what they need that day, and then yeah, they can select this and pick up the groceries at the supermarket or uh, or even have it delivered. Yeah, I can I can imagine not. Not long from now, there will be a drone flying to all of the uh, team members' houses with the the meal, that, all the ingredients they need to, to cook their meal, just landing right at their front door. We're not quite that far yet, but that would be a next step. Yes. <laughs> Amazon Prime delivery. Right. Exactly. Every yeah. day. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. But when you when you think about these things, you have to you have to think big, and you have to think a little bit outside the uh, the box, and and not like think too much about the restraints and all the things that make it really difficult to do. Because if you get a good group of people together, you can actually you can actually make things work, and that's uh, that's one of the things that has definitely happened here. So when you're individualizing this, I'm assuming with all these athletes, you've got them in the lab before the, the race and, and you've done the test on them to see what their, their fat and carbohydrate ratios are at uh, increasing intensities and you're using that to analyze their, their file each day? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's sort of the logical way to do this. Although, even if you do a lab test of, say, one hour, um, that sort of data is very difficult to extrapolate to a five-hour stage in the Tour de France, of course. Um, so, all the tests would give you is a, is a pretty rough estimate and, a, and probably a very good starting point. And what you end up doing is probably a little bit trial and error. And this is, uh, this is certainly something that we've, we've learned. We, we got a ride first time for a number of riders, but a number of riders also were very hungry when, they, when we used the same equations for them. So these equations of what they need really need to be adjusted to the uh, to the person and some of it you you can maybe base on science or try to base on science but some of it is it's just simply trial and error and once you've sort of nailed the algorithm it'll just always work for that person i think i've never seen a study on this but i have to believe that at an event like the tour over the course of the event these these athletes are just going to become fat burning animals because it's just so hard to keep the glycogen stocked up. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that study either, so I can't really uh, base this on any uh, scientific evidence. But I would actually expect that whether someone is a is a fat burner or not is is largely genetic. Now, from my from my experience, I've seen that people are either good fat burners or they're either really good carbohydrate burners, and there are also some people who sit somewhere in between, but usually you, they fit into one of these two um, categories. And clearly, they, they're, they're all riding together in the pro peloton. So it's not directly affecting performance, but it may affect what they actually need to fuel with. And I think, and this is also, again, it's not based on a lot of science, but it's more experience. It's, it, it appears that if you measure the uh, the fat burning guys then um, those, those are the ones that don't really know what a hunger knock is um, but the ones that are really good at burning carbohydrate they uh, they know that feeling really well and exactly what that is I, d- I don't know it may uh, it may relate partly to fiber type although I wouldn't expect a large difference in fiber type in the, in in a group of 
professional cyclists. So there's still yeah a lot of a lot of questions that I also have about why is it that the metabolism is so different and and also why is it that even though it is that different they're all riding together and their their performance is very similar. The, the the immediate reaction I had is well we talk about the differences within humans at the end of the day we're we're all aerobic animals none of us are are compared to to what you see in the in the wild true strength pure anaerobic beasts so I guess it, it's all it's all relative yeah and then we we are talking about professional cyclists and they are really all at one end or the extreme end of that spectrum so even if you have this like a group of kind of aerobic animals, right? Um, like the professional cyclists will all sit at the very far end of that, of the spectrum. Yeah, which is kind of what I was getting at. You, you can talk about the difference between a tour sprinter and a tour time trialist, but you compare them to a 100-meter sprinter on the track, and it's those two cyclists really just aren't that different. Yeah, correct. Let's dive into that big topic of GI distress can you give us a, a, a starting point of the causes of GI distress? Yes, uh, although that's actually a very difficult question uh, because I don't think we actually know um, a lot about the, uh, the causes. We know a lot of um, factors that increase the risk of getting GI distress. And some of those factors are nutritional, but actually most of those factors are not nutritional. We know, for example, that runners suffer more than cyclists. So, and we think that that has something to do with the up and down movement, um, which means that also the GI system will move up and down and maybe somehow that causes some uh, GI distress. We know that women have more GI problems than men uh, for reasons we don't really uh, understand. We know that the food intake, the days before uh, races seems to have an effect on whether people develop GI problems or not. So there's a number of factors that we know relate to GI problems, but in terms of the actual causes, that's that's why, why do we get GI problems when we start to exercise, and why don't we get it in training? Because a lot of people have no problems in training, but then they go to races and suddenly they have all of these problems. There are also people who have this every long training uh why why is that and so the only like real theory that has developed um is is around blood supply to the gi system uh, there is of course a redistribution of blood flow as soon as you start exercising where skin and muscle will get more blood and there there will be less blood therefore available for the gi system and maybe that causes uh, suboptimal performance of the GI system. Uh, that that is one uh, theory, but to be honest, there is not a huge amount of evidence that that actually happens. There are maybe two or three studies that I'm aware of that have measured something in that uh, direction, but it's it's also really difficult to measure. Like everyone seems to have their own pattern of problems, and that that pattern is fairly reproducible. But it's really different from one person to the next. Why? I'm not sure. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, and it's a real problem because, I mean, maybe in cycling a little bit less so than in, in running. And in triathlon, it's, it's extremely uh, prevalent. If we look at the studies, then we can find any, anything between 30 and 93% of prevalence. 
So there are races where 93% of the people um, report some sort of problem. Wow. I, this is partly because of the way these studies are set up and the questions are asked, right? Because not all of these, and I think if it's 93%, then the question was probably, did you have any uh, GI problems or did you have any of the following uh, issues? And some of those issues are really non-severe, but they could be classed as GI issues. What we're really interested in are those issues, of course, that, that affect performance and have a negative effect on performance or even health. So you brought up that, that 93%. And so that's actually from your 2000 study. And it touched on something that, that I personally found really interesting, which was there does seem to be some sort of correlation with, with endotoxemia. Yeah. Basically, the symptoms that the, these athletes are seeing are, are somewhat similar to sepsis. Yeah. So, Chris, endotoxemia is when you see some of the, the contents of the gut. So, in particular, something called lipopolysaccharide, LPS, which is on the bad bacteria in your gut, gets into circulation. Yeah. That causes a reaction that causes a lot of these symptoms that you see. Yeah. Uh, if it gets really bad, that leads to sepsis. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the symptoms of sepsis and you look at the symptoms that these athletes were reporting, they're very, very similar. And I noticed in your study, you showed that 79% of the people who were reporting GI problems also had elevated LPS in their, in their bloodstream. But you didn't see that they, even, even though there was a correlation, the, the symptoms didn't come on with the, the elevated LPS. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. So, I mean, I maybe should go one little step back is that we, we, this is all measured during an Ironman distance triathlon. So a very long distance uh, event where the, the finishers were between 11 hours, I think, and 16, if I remember correctly, or 15 hours. So it's a very long distance event in really extreme conditions. So this is in the there's a huge amount of altitude difference in uh, in this uh, this race, and the conditions are extremely hot. We picked that on purpose because we wanted to measure in the most extreme uh, situation. And in that most extreme situation, the, the theory was exactly what what you described, right? So the uh, the gut stops to function normally. Um, it it normally has a very important barrier function. If that barrier function um, does not work appropriately, it means that bacteria and uh, could could enter the uh, the body with with all sorts of um, negative consequences. And we we didn't well we we did see uh, some elevations, uh, but. Nothing that uh, anyone in a, in a clinic would actually be alarmed uh, from. So I think the main conclusion of the study was that maybe like even in that really extreme situation, it, it, it probably is not bacterial translocation that causes all these problems that people have. But it's still uh, one of the theories that's, uh, that's out there. We, we were triggered by another study where they they showed like very large amounts of bacterial translocation in uh, in in runners um so we like the the first and maybe the most important conclusion was that we we couldn't confirm those results from that study and what we think is that actually the experts that we worked with on uh, bacterial translocation uh 
they they believe in that study that because it's a field study, it's very difficult to uh, to not contaminate your samples, um, and the slightest contamination can uh, give the results that they had. And we were really careful not to contaminate the uh, the samples, and therefore didn't see like the same magnitude of response that they had. So I'm, personally, I don't think that. I think it can happen. I think it it will happen in really extreme situations, but I don't think that this is the reason why people have GI problems. Also because a lot of the GI problems happen well before any bacterial translocation would occur. Well, it's interesting because like you said, it's, it's something that people are, are still researching. I don't know if you saw, there was this 2000, so just as January, a study in uh, PLOS that again looked at, at triathletes, and it was actually looking more at intestinal permeability. So they were measuring a, a marker of permeability called zonulin, and Chris was giving me that look of... I love it. Nerd bombs. <laughs> Drop you, them. You know, I get excited when I start throwing these terms out. So, And they did find a, a correlation between intestinal permeability or the, the zonulin levels, and, and uh, they, they found that correlated with muscle damage. So, you know, there wasn't a... a home run study of here's the cause of all the, the GI stress. You know, they saw some of the same things as you. They Certain markers that they expected to elevate didn't elevate. Uh, but they certainly did see that correlation with intestinal permeability. I mean, it is, of course, uh, important to realize that correlation doesn't mean causation, right? So sometimes you find correlations, but the two things have very little to do with each other other than in this case maybe like hard exercise caused both um but the two don't necessarily need to be correlated if you were asked to speculate i'm going to ask you to speculate if mm -hmm. without the with the absence of concrete evidence what do you think is the mechanism here that causes this is it a host of things yeah, I think it's a, it's a host of things, and this is the reason why the, there's such a wide variety of symptoms. But I think the the main the main cause must have to do something with the so the innovation of the GI system. So it's in terms of uh, neural inner innovation, it's one of the most dense uh, tissues. There's a lot of neural uh, neurons uh, in the uh, in the GI. Uh, area and this is probably why in stressful situations races uh, for example we see some of these problems uh, that are much more profound or that in, in uh, training situations you don't see them at all um, so I think the fact that there are so many neurons and that that has something uh, to do with it. It also makes it really difficult to address it because training stress or uh, uh, race stress, sorry, is, uh, is, is race stress. Not easy to, uh, need, not easy to reduce. So I think that is, is one of the main reasons, uh, especially if people have these problems with races, but not in training. Mm -hmm. um, in, in other cases, um, I think it is related to nutrition. And this is just like sometimes just poor nutrition choices. Sometimes it is, yeah, just not not knowing, not knowing that for you maybe fiber intake the days before can have an effect on GI problems. And this is a this is a very common factor 
another one, and this one is also not well described in the in the literature, is a lactose intolerance. Some people are lactose intolerant. They usually know it and they avoid uh, dairy products. But other people don't never see the symptoms of uh, a very mild lactose intolerance. And maybe that lactose intolerant actually becomes a little bit more severe during exercise. So those are the people that would benefit from reducing or removing dairy products the day or days before the, uh, the race. This is not very well described in the literature, but it's certainly my experience that if you just, for some people, reduce dairy uh, products the days before, it, it can completely solve their GI problems. And the same is true for fiber. So some people, if they just remove fibers from the diet two days before a race, sometimes that completely solves their GI problems. Katie Compton is arguably one of America's greatest cyclists, having won the National Cyclocross Championships 15 years in a row. But like many cyclists, she hasn't been able to escape GI issues. Chris talked with her about this and just how individual nutrition and gut issues really are. So I don't, I don't know if this a rabbit hole that we want to go down, but... It's a deep rabbit hole <laughs> if you really want to go down that one, but... Yeah, no offense, but you're atypical, I think. I am, Yeah. Um, and I've read a lot about nutrition. I've also tried quite a few things for my own personal just interest and to see what works. Um, also through coaching a lot of people for a long time, every single person is different. And one nutrition program that works for one athlete doesn't work for the other. And I've also found that too. And some athletes can eat a ton of carbohydrates and digest it and not have any issues. Some people can, you know, eat massive quantities of fructose and digest it just fine and not have any stomach cramping. But majority of people can't necessarily get away with it. And so I feel like each athlete needs to figure out what works for them. And it's a lot of trial and error. And it's a lot of like looking at research and be like, well, let's try this or let's try that and see what works. Um, if it doesn't work, let's move on to something else until you can dial in what works for you um, as an athlete. And also knowing that what works for you when you're 20 doesn't work with you when you're 30. <laughs> and when you're 40, it's going to constantly change. And food allergies develop over time. Um, seasonal allergies get, can get worse over time. So it's it's definitely something that's dynamic, and I feel like you need to listen to the body and see what it needs. If you're having food issues, digestive issues, why? What what have you been eating that might be different or might just all of a sudden start affecting you? Because I didn't have any allergies till I was like 30, probably my mid to early 30s, or th early, yeah, mid to early 30s, I think is when I first started having issues. Before that, I could eat whatever I wanted. It didn't matter, minus the folic, folic acid, but like... It was great when I could eat whatever. <laughs> and now I'm just like, ah, oh, why does this bother me too? <laughs> yeah, I bet yeah. it's frustrating. It is, yeah. But like now I've dialed it in and I actually feel really good. And I eat a variety of foods and foods that work with me and I don't have many issues anymore. But that's also taken a lot of trial and error and figuring out what, what works for me. But yeah, I have heard the carbohydrates, especially like um, the Dutch have an uncanny ability to absorb and metabolize carbohydrates more than a lot of cultures in the world. So, yeah, and that's, um, I read uh, David Epstein's The Sports Gene, and I think that's where, because he went through all the cultures in the world and the nutrition in different cultures and how some individuals can uh, digest certain foods better than others. And I remember the, the Dutch could digest carbohydrates better than most any other culture. So, wow. yeah, so it, it depends on where you're from and what your genetics are. Absolutely. People realize, necessarily. Let's get back to the show and talk about nutrition and races. 
So what about the, there's a fairly old and, and simple explanation, but certainly one that's been proposed before, is that you have athletes, when they get to race day, they, they change how they eat. You know, they, they have that philosophy of, well, you know, the group ride on Saturday is one thing, but a race is another thing. And suddenly in the race, they're over-focused on getting every gel into their system that they can get into their system. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, as you said, because it's very intense, the, there's less blood flow to the gut. So you essentially have more carbohydrates, more fuel hitting their, their gut when their gut isn't functioning well than they're used to. So you start having some fermentation issues, potentially. You particularly have an issue of that highly concentrated, probably sodium and carbohydrate mix in the gut is drawing fluid uh, into the gut out of circulation. And then this, I know this is a theory that uh, Dr. Stacy Sims has promoted. And those two things are causing some of the, the bloating and gas that people experience. Is there, is there any validity to that in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is what I was referring to as nutrition mistakes. Especially during during races or, or during training, this is uh, this can be a real uh, cause. But I think it's it's got to be extreme, and with extreme, I mean it's got to be extremely different from what you normally do. Now, if someone always trains with just water, never takes any gels, never takes any carbohydrate on board, then it is pretty quickly extreme. Your gut is not used to seeing gels so it's yeah it's, it's not surprising i think that uh, that if you then suddenly start to take large amounts of gels and especially if you don't uh, take a lot of water with that then that can easily cause uh, gi problems and this is also this is actually has been discussed in the literature so th there is a clear correlation between high carbohydrate intake high carbohydrate drinks uh, with a, uh, like really concentrated drinks or gels and uh, GI problems. Um, but usually these are problems uh, of the upper GI tract. So it's, uh, it's usually stomach related, stomach cramping, uh, bloating, and uh, usually a little bit less sort of diarrhea. And these, these problems are also um, usually a little bit more acute. And it's simply because if the carbohydrate concentration in your gut is too high, then your body will start to dilute that content and keeps it in the stomach for a little bit longer until it is actually diluted. So you're, you're just slowing, slowing things down if you take too much carbohydrate too soon uh, with too little water. Now, having said that, there are situations, I think, where it is, it is really appropriate to do that. If, uh, if we're looking at colder conditions where the carbohydrate need is quite high, in those conditions, it is, I think, appropriate to take more carbohydrate and less, uh, less water on board. As, as a guide, we developed a piece of software for people to, uh, to use. I um, hope that's okay to, uh, to mention. Yeah. It's... Um, uh, the software is called uh, Core. It can be found on fuelthecore.com. And it's, it's free to use, but we use the, the scientific evidence that is in the literature and came up with a nutrition advice where we separate more or less the fluid advice from the carbohydrate advice and then put the two together. So the fluid advice is based on sweat rates and it is also based on 
um, a certain amount of fluid that is okay to lose. There is no need to drink as much as you sweat. It is okay to lose some body weight. Um, but there is a point where you've lost so much body weight and you've lost so much fluid that it's going to impair performance. So it's finding that it's finding that balance. And a lot depends on the duration of the event and sweat rate. So that's the, the fluid side. The carbohydrate side, and this is something that we've shown in, in many studies, the, your carbohydrate needs are really dependent mostly on the duration of the event. If the event is shorter, um, you need less carbohydrate. If the event is longer, you also need a higher carbohydrate intake per hour. In events over two and a half or suddenly over three hours, we would recommend 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And that's that's quite a lot. We need to ask you about that because in your research talking about gut training, you pointed out that our we, we can get into the, the glucose fructose mix in a second. Uh, but you said mm-hmm. maximal absorption rates tends to be right around 60 grams per hour. And there doesn't seem to be a ton that we can do to increase that. So how come you're, you're recommending 90 grams if that's beyond what anybody can absorb? Yeah, so I have to take you back a little bit in, in some of the studies that we, we did. So initially, I was interested in this finding from all of our studies, but also many other studies, that, that whatever, whatever you did, we never saw absorption rates or i should actually say oxidation rates because that's really what we uh, what we measure of more than 60 grams per hour so even when we we gave people 180 grams of carbohydrate per hour ridiculous amount they were still only using 60 grams per hour and uh, and other studies found the same so gradually you you see an increase in exogenous carbohydrate oxidation if you go from a very small intake to 60 grams per hour if you go over 60 grams per hour it doesn't really change your oxidation rates it stays at around 60 grams per hour so i was kind of fascinated by that uh, by that finding and i thought well if we could find a way to increase carbohydrate uh, oxidation, then maybe that can also affect performance. But how do we do that? So we had to find the limitation to this. Why is it that you can only oxidize 60 grams per hour? And so we looked at gastric emptying and found, well, the, the, the stomach can empty much more than 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. So that wasn't the reason. We looked at uptake of carbohydrate by the muscle. And when we infused glucose directly into the into the blood we saw that the muscle can take up much more than 60 grams per hour so that wasn't the limiting factor and in the end we ended up with only one possible explanation and that was the absorption but if we picked up a textbook then the textbooks would actually show us that well the capacity for the gut to absorb carbohydrate is virtually unlimited so this this idea went against all of the textbooks. Um, so we designed a study because if if we give glucose, that glucose is normally transported through a transporter called SGLT1. It's a sodium-coupled glucose transport. Um, and we believe that maybe that transport was limiting. 
So if you give more than 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, you saturate the transport and you just cannot get more carbohydrate into the into the body. A little bit comparable with um, uh, if you have a number of people in the, in the room, you open a door and you tell those people to leave the room as quickly as possible. It just depends on how wide that door is, how many people can leave the room. And it's, it's the same, I think, with, with glucose. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. This is probably where it's worth mentioning that fructose actually uses a different transporter. It uses GLUT5, so that's one of the ways you can increase a little bit of your, your uh, carbohydrate absorption. Yeah, that's right. So that would be a, opening a second door, basically. And so that's that's where we started to um, do experiments with combinations of glucose and fructose, where we uh, we gave enough glucose to saturate the SGLT1 transporter, and then we gave fructose on top of that, hoping that that would get across through the GLUT5 transporter. Um, and in the first study, we confirmed immediately that uh, that was the case. And in that first study, we saw oxidation rates were about 30% higher than with a mix of glucose and fructose than with just glucose. And that was just yeah, the first study of a whole series where we tried to figure out how can we optimize uh, carbohydrate delivery. In the, in the later studies there, we, we found that we can even deliver carbohydrate at a rate that was 70% higher than we thought was initially the maximum that you could possibly achieve. What sort of rates, what sort of absolute quantities were you seeing when you were increasing it that much? Um, in, in grams per minute, we found 1.75 grams per minute. So that's yeah, 70, 75% more than the one gram per minute that we thought was maximum. Wow. Um, so yeah, huge, huge differences simply by using a combination of different carbohydrates. We used glucose and fructose in the first study. We also tried different combinations. We tried uh, glucose, sucrose, and fructose. We tried maltodextrins and fructose, which is actually what I would recommend because fructose is extremely sweet. Glucose is really sweet. 
so the combination doesn't give you a very palatable solution, even though it may be effective. Uh, but if you combine uh, fructose with uh, maltodextrins, then the, the taste is uh, a little bit more tolerable. Um, so that, that's a sort of practical solution. And we've also seen uh, really good results in terms of oxidation with mixtures of maltodextrins and fructose. So I'm just going to do a quick health aside here. Fructose in combination um, when you're exercising is fantastic, but it's not something that you want to overconsume at rest because, first of all, fructose is actually processed by the, lim- uh, by the liver, and it isn't rate limited. When you consume fructose, you, you maximally oxidize it. So if your body doesn't have a use for it, you're going to start seeing big buildups of, of lactate and, and other issues that are going to uh, cause health concerns. There is a belief that it's what's causing the fatty liver disease in children. Yeah, that's true. But we're really talking about overfeeding with uh, with fructose here, and right. so I think even fructose in, in moderate amounts, I don't think we need to uh, we need to panic about that. But it's if if we're talking overfeeding and definitely overfeeding large, really large amounts, which is how many of these studies are done. Yeah, then then you're absolutely right. That's something we should should avoid, especially if you're not exercising. So an apple's not going to kill you, but if you're pounding tons of soda and tons of sports drinks when you're just sitting around, you, you might have concerns. Yeah, definitely. The like the rates that we at which we advise uh, to to take it here, that's not something that uh, of 90, 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, and then of the ninety thirty grams per hour would be fructose. Um, those are definitely not amounts that I would recommend for someone who just sits watching watching tv even if it's watching the tour de france (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so we 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 found really high oxidation rates of 1.75 grams uh, per minute with a mixture of uh, glucose and fructose it was actually um, a one-to-one ratio in that Um, but in that particular study we gave carbohydrate at 2.4 grams per minute that's a that's a very large amount, 144 uh, grams per hour, and suddenly not something that I would recommend in a practical uh, setting. It was uh, we did the study because we wanted to find out what what is the maximum, uh, because every time we did a study, we saw uh, higher oxidation rates, and uh, so we just wanted to push the system and see where where we could take it. Uh, 1.75 grams per minute is still the highest value reported in the literature. But in, in terms of practical amounts, um, we, we think 90 grams per hour is practical. It can be tolerated, maybe not by everyone, certainly not the first time, but by most athletes. And I, I think the advice that we always give if we recommend these, uh, these larger amounts of carbohydrate is that people should train it. It's not something that... Um, you just decide, oh, I have a race uh, next week. Uh, I'm going to just take 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Um, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster, of course. So you need to, and we call it, train the gut. And fortunately, the gut is extremely, extremely trainable. Just like we can train our muscles, we can train the uh, the gut. And we, we don't have a huge amount of human studies to base this on, but uh, there is very convincing animal work and some human uh, studies. Sorry, quickly, I just want to ask you about that, because in your your review of all this research, you said that it is very trainable. So 
the, these transporters for uh, glucose can be increased quite rapidly. Like you can see changes in three days. But then at the, towards the end of the review, you said you still didn't see rates of, of glucose oxidization going much over 60 grams per hour. Yeah, this is based on, on one, um, one human study uh, that where, where they tried to train, train the gut over a period of uh, 28 days. They gave extra carbohydrate before, during and after uh, training. And they compared it to a normal situation where that extra carbohydrate was not provided. So in both situations, carbohydrate intake was fairly high, but one was even higher because they took the carbohydrate around the uh, the exercise. And the, at the end of that study, after 28 days, they saw that carbohydrate absorption was increased um, as evidenced by increased oxidation rates. But yeah, they they were not like dramatic changes, but... I think they're very significant changes uh, because small improvements in oxidation can can really make a difference. I also think that that's only one aspect of it. So they they looked at the um, uh, the transport of uh, of carbohydrate and the and the oxidation, but training the gut means also training the uh, the stomach, um, and that that is something that you. Um, your stomach would feel much more comfortable because you've trained this uh, several times. And there is another human study that uh, in runners that uh, that shows that effect after just a few days of uh, training. So if you take a certain amount of fluid, fairly large amount of fu- uh, fluid, uh, the first time during exercise, it you feel bloated and it's really uncomfortable. But after doing that a few days, um, it it's not uncomfortable anymore, or at least it's it feels a lot more comfortable than it did before. Um, and then those are really important adaptations as well, I think, because we that that feeling of discomfort um, can actually hold people back, taking on fluids, taking on carbohydrates that they would actually need. I love the analogy you used in that review where you compared it to uh, professional eaters, like the people who see them in hot dogs <laughs> in 10 minutes and said, that they, what was it? They, they yeah. get 69 hot dogs, something like that, in, in 10 minutes and they, they wouldn't feel bloated yeah, at all. Well, I'm not sure they won't feel bloated after eating that many hot dogs, but I, I think, yeah, we, we see this training to go out something new, but for those guys, that's 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 what they do. I mean... They, uh, that, that's definitely not news for them that you can train the gut because they, uh, they, they do this, um, preparing for these, uh, for their competitions. They have an on, uh, a season and an off season. And in the off season, they can't eat that many, uh, burgers. So it's, uh, or hot dogs. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. So it's, it's extremely trainable. Now, obviously, we don't want to tell our listeners to go eat a bunch of hot dogs on a regular basis. So. <laughs> I can't even I can't even yeah, watch that stuff. It's so gross to me. It's unbelievable what they what they're shoving in their faces. So And they're usually like isn't that the grand champion of this? A small guy from Japan? Yeah, they're, they're not usually big guys. Yeah. Oh man, that stuff that stuff uh, no point in yeah, it turns my stomach that that's watching not that. The, uh, the message that people take away from uh, from this that, that, that that's what I'm promoting. please don't the the other message i'm going to give which we're also not promoting is train your gut with swedish fish the more you need person i did a six-hour ride this weekend and and i think i was consuming 200 grams of swedish fish per hour and 
I was tolerating and absorbing all of it because it's Swedish fish. That is that is Trevor's go-to food. Maybe you guys could have a whole conversation about that offline sometime, but it's it's pretty funny. Uh, I actually looked at the sugar ratios in Swedish fish, and it's completely wrong. But I am a strong believer that once they put it in the form of Swedish fish, and it is so tasty <laughs> that my body just ignores that and absorbs it all. It's either that or are you Oscar? Are you familiar with the key nerds? No. No, I don't. There, there, is an, there is an American, and I don't know if it's only in America, but they are called nerds, and they're hard little candies that are packed with, you know, sugar, of course. And uh, yeah, that's, I think, honestly, I think you really should switch it up, and that should be your go to ride food is nerds, because, you know, nerd bombs, you're, you're a nerd. Or one of these days, I could actually bring along something healthy. And that, that's true. That is true. One thing we love to do on this show is use the side interviews to present contrasting opinions. This one may take the cake, both metaphorically and literally. So after my somewhat embarrassing discussion of Swedish fish, let's get a reality check from Colby Pierce. So I'm sure this is something you've had to deal with yourself and had to deal with a lot of athletes. So yeah, what are your thoughts? Eat real food. Period. <laughs> I I think cycling sports in general have a massive double standard that astoundingly hypocritical and it kind of pisses me off a little bit. If I went into a 7-Eleven and I was just a quote normal human because I don't know if you know this but I'm a superhero because I wear spandex. But if I was a normal person who had a you know job, worked in a cubicle, that kind of thing and I went into a 7-Eleven and came out with a box of cake frosting and three Gatorades and a Snickers bar and a Kit Kat, you'd be like, why are you eating that crap? But for some reason, it's acceptable for us to eat these in the middle of a 50 mile ride. If you were, I should back up. If you were a conscientious person who believed in whole food diets, you know, eating things that you could find on a forest floor or on a farm, you would be like, that is the worst food you could possibly eat. It's hyper processed. Bike racers, triathletes, sportsmen, we all eat. All the foods come in plastic wrappers. Uh, they're all hyper-processed. I mean, some less than more. And I, whenever I eat a bar or a convenience food, which is what it is, realistically, you got to be honest, it's a convenience food. I, tr- I search for the foods that are the least processed. Uh, Enduro Bites being a great example, right? Um, Ali's bars were a great example when they existed. Sad violin. But I always search for whole foods. I mean, eat a freaking banana. But for some reason, it's acceptable for us to eat gels. Gels are cake frosting. Let's be real. Like they're just straight up sugar. You can put fancy expensive amino acids in them and a few other things. There's a cake frosting, man. And that is not healthy. It's not healthy for your teeth. And yes, the insulin response is curved when you're three hours into a hard bike race. But that doesn't excuse all the other problems that eating concentrated packets of sugar cause you. Now, ultimately, you got to put fuel in the tank to run the drag racer. I get that. But they make things like purple potatoes and basmati rice. Alan published a whole cookbook on delicious real food alternatives you can put in your pocket. So I think if you're talking about training the gut to handle things like 74 grams of refined table sugar, then have fun with that. I, I don't think that's, I think that's a fool's errand to be brutally honest. Um, anyone who thinks that they need to do that for sport is even if you're making a lot of money as a professional triathlete or cyclist, you're kind of doing it wrong, in my opinion. You're There will be a cost for that. The human body is not a machine. We don't pour sugar down a hole endlessly and not expect consequences. Now, I sound like a total soapbox preacher here. I was a pro cyclist, air quotes, for years, and I ate lots of gels and lots of bars. So I get it. 
Now, just to be clear, like I still race my bike. I still ride my bike quite a bit for someone who, you know, isn't paid to do it. That's eight to 12 hours a week, plus some gym and occasional big weeks on top of that. Unless I'm literally dying, I will not eat a gel for the rest of my life. I will never have another highly processed energy bar again, period, done. I don't put sugar mix in my bottles. Even if I'm doing oat root, which is 35 hours of riding in one week, I'm just done with that stuff. Like, what about higher priorities for my health? What about training the gut to cons- to process more, a larger more quantity, quantity of calories, yeah. assuming that they're from a healthy source? Yeah. I mean, I'll say this. It's a really simple rule. You go out and you train long and hard. You eat what you're going to eat on race day and you try to consume it in the same right. volume. I'm also really struggle with, and this will be a bit of an unpopular opinion probably in the modern sports world. I really struggle with things like calculators uh, that try to tell you how many grams of carbohydrate you should have per hour, how many liters of fluid and what solution you should have per hour. Man, there's so many confounding variables in that, just like there are in almost everything. It's also very individual. Everyone's individual. The gut biome is individual. I mean, you can have two people wearing a Dexcon blood sugar scanner and feeding the same thing, get different results when they're not exercising, let alone when you add exercise into the equation, then you add temperature and humidity into the equation, how adapted the athlete is to that environment. You've got a million variables. It's landing a small aircraft. That's all it is. Too much speed, too low altitude, you're going to crash and burn. (laughs) It's not rocket science. Like again, and these metrics can be useful to instruct the athlete, but what are we instructing them to do? We're always instructing the athlete to develop their own internal intuition. You need to know how much food you need. When you wake up in the morning on race day and you go, man, I'm I'm a little unusually hungry today. If you're paying attention, you'll go, okay, I need a couple, five extra bites of oatmeal today or another egg because it's a cold race. On the other hand, if you're like, man, I really am struggling to get this food down, but I know I need something, then maybe you cut your breakfast meal in half and you continue to monitor. And then you get a hunger pang 45 minutes before the race. That tells you something. So you're always adjusting your speed and altitude of the airplane based on what your body is experiencing because we are, we are... The body's a cybernetic organism. It's a system of systems. It's very complicated. Applying a formula of like 40 grams of carbs per however many minutes of exercise is just no disrespect to anyone who's done this because I know a lot of scientists geek out on this. But to me, honestly, that's garbage. It's useless information. Guideline, huge in the sky guideline at best, which I could also give someone by saying, don't eat an entire chocolate cake five minutes before a road race <laughs> or five hot dogs. And also don't not eat 24 hours before. As long as you're between those two windows, we're doing, we're starting going to narrow it down from there. You got to find what's right for you. And it sounds like you're on the, the same page that we're on of there's no such a thing as race day food. You don't on race day suddenly eat differently from how you've been eating all the rest of the year. I, I actually have preconceived race day menus that are the same. They're three, three menu items I pick from and I manufacture, I find a way to pull those together before any important event. No matter what, even to this day, even though I'm not really a racer anymore. No matter where you are, too. No matter where I am. Yeah, I find those ingredients and I assemble them. And that's a recipe. And the beauty of that is that for a given amount of food, I can look at the size of the food in the plate without weighing it or measuring it and know, like, this is about how much I should eat. And then I'm monitoring that food intake based on how I feel. If I'm really full or I haven't been hungry for a day or really haven't felt hunger pangs, then I know that I can, I can and should be conservative, especially if the race is hot. And especially if I'm eating closer to the race, and especially if the race is shorter and requires more intensity, all those are contributing factors. On the other hand, if I'm doing a 110-mile road race or a road ride or something, and I'm eating farther away, and it's going to be a cold day, then I'm going to add a couple more. Couple but more these are all foods that you eat on days that aren't race day as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah yes. Right. They're not special race meals. <laughs> they are. They are a little bit more carbohydrate oriented than I would eat on a non-race uh, day, particularly a low volume training day. 
but they're foods that I would eat. And just to give it away, one of them basically basmati rice, a little bit of prosciutto, an egg, a little bit of goat cheese and sea salt. That's the fundamental. How much of each of those ratios depends on what the total quantity is and a little bit of olive oil on top. All that changes based on So I didn't hear you say cookie in there. No cookies. I'm, I'm currently not consuming gluten uh, just for now. I'm a, a, but how, so I'm, how many I'm cookies do you, do you eat during oat root? How many cookies? Yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't counted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you're messing with me. Yeah. Okay. He has a cookie obsession. <laughs> You know, had a whole episode Let's get back to the show and talk with Dr. Eukendrup about strategies he uses to train the gut. Ignoring hot dogs and Swedish fish, what do you recommend people do to train their gut in, in a healthier way? Um, yeah, so um, this is partly based on research and partly we, we are still guessing. Um, I think in terms of of duration you probably need 10 weeks and maybe one day a week that is dedicated to training the gut and i think you will see some significant changes over that uh, that period um, i say one day a week because i think i don't think it's necessary to do uh, much more or maybe you don't want to do much more because during that session you would be consuming probably quite a bit of fluid but quite a bit of uh, carbohydrate and once a week is probably sufficient to do that um, i usually say pick the uh, the day that looks the most like the uh, the race um, and then in that particular uh, workout in that particular training you just practice your race nutrition. Now, if you use this uh, software I was talking about, Fuel the Core, and it tells you that your carbohydrate intake should be about 80 grams uh, per hour or 60 grams or whatever it is, if, if, it, if it spits out 60 grams, if I take that example, then it probably means that you need to start training the gut at a slightly lower level. And probably 40 or 50 grams is already quite a bit for you. But I would do that one day in the week. I would use that, use maybe 40 the first time, 50 the uh, second time. Hopefully, it feels a little bit uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. And then you build up to 60. And if all goes well, then maybe two weeks before the event or three weeks before the event, you can actually go up to 70 grams uh, per hour a little bit more than you're actually planning to do in your race. Because if you can do that 70 grams per hour in training, you can probably do 60 grams per hour in the race, no problem. If the, uh, of course, if the uh, software would spit out, well, you have to go 90 grams uh, per hour, then yeah, you start at maybe at 60, build up to 90 and maybe go 100 or even 110 grams two or three weeks uh, before. But it's, yeah, it's listening to your body a little bit, but also at the same time, just like any training, just pushing the boundaries a little bit. Um, if you're always comfortable, it's probably not going to improve, um, but it needs to be a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable or at least borderline. So I think that that's, that's how I would approach it. So, yeah, that was exactly the question I was going to ask you is you, you're even calling this training. Training by nature isn't always comfortable. So when you're doing this on the group ride, you should feel like not so bloated that you have to pull out a group ride, but you should feel a little bit bloated. You should feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that's that's training your body to handle. That's it, right? that's right. Yes. Yeah. 
So the other question I have for you, which is an important one to me, is are there any health concerns to this? And we, you said that the, this endotoxemia doesn't seem to relate to the symptoms, but there still is evidence that this high carbohydrate consumption can promote some endotoxemia, which isn't healthy for you. You even showed in some of your studies that the um, high carbohydrate consumption can affect the, the functioning of the immune system. It, it, it drops your, your type 1 cytokine levels. It drops your TNF-alpha levels. Um, are there health concerns to this? Well, I think generally those, uh, in, in terms of the immune function, those changes are usually positive. So generally, carbohydrate, higher carbohydrate intake will help the immune system. So from that, that respect, I don't think there is any um, health concern. Um, and in terms of bacterial translocation, as I said, I don't think that really is, uh, is a big issue. Um, certainly not like related to the carbohydrate intake. If it is, it is more related, I think, to the fact that people become extremely hot, extremely dehydrated or very long periods of extreme exercise. So I haven't seen any evidence of uh, of negative effects of this. We also have to put this into a little bit of context here because I, I talk about large amounts of carbohydrate because it feels like we're taking on a lot of carbohydrate. But say we're taking 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, that is uh, 360 uh, calories. So 360 calories even for like that that's for a, for a professional cyclist is only one third of the calories they would be uh, they would be burning for the average cyclist maybe it is 50 percent of the uh, the calories they're burning at in the in that hour so we're, we're not talking about sort of overeating or uh, it's it is like a fairly large amount of carbohydrate, but it's not a ridiculous amount. So we need to keep that context in uh, in mind because I always get the questions of people, uh, oh, will I gain weight? No, you won't um, because you're still burning a lot more than you're actually ingesting. When somebody asks you a very specific, like a specific, what should I eat? You know, you talked about seeking a mixture of maltodextrin and fructose to get the, the not two sweets in 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 one dose and then to use the separate transporters is there a product is there a, is there specific foods that you highly recommend over others yeah it depends of course a little bit on what what you're trying to achieve if this is someone who wants to go up in this sort of 90 grams per hour then the composition becomes really important and you need to make sure that you have this combination of glucose and fructose or maltodextrins and uh, and fructose but in the most important thing related to this question is that you you choose a product that you can actually tolerate the product that you actually like and this is incredibly um, individual. So I would never say, oh, this product is much better than that product because <laughs> it really depends. Uh, some people tolerate one product really well, but not the other. And the next person, it is just, it's the other way around. So yeah, it's very difficult. I, I can give general guidelines. I would, I would always uh, choose a product that has this maltodextrin fructose ratio of around uh, 2.1. It doesn't have to be that exact ratio, but roughly, roughly that, especially if you're taking 90 grams uh, per hour or something similar. I would try and find a product that is not too acidic. Um, a lot of products 
for reasons of shelf life, but also reasons of taste, um, have a very high acidity. And I think that sometimes relates or links to uh, GI problems in some people. I would always look for a little bit of sodium in that uh, in that drink uh, for a number of reasons. It's uh, it's taste, it makes you thirsty, and therefore you just it's easier to keep uh, keep drinking. It helps also with fluid absorption. So th- those are really the um, the things that I would be looking for. But there are many products on the market that uh, fit those criteria. So which product you choose really depends on what you mm-hmm. like and what you can tolerate. Sorry, I'm going to overrule you. Swedish fish, they, they trump everything. You after, said- after that, you can debate what's second. second. <laughs> That's number one. Sure, yeah. sure. How much are they how much are they paying you to say that? I thought you didn't take bribes. This is the worst thing. How many times have I promoted Swedish fish? I'm, 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 they don't even know I exist. Well, they should because we could get a really good sponsorship. No, this is just pure love. <laughs> All right. Chris worked with Ryan Kohler, the head coach at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center, on his nutrition strategy for Dirty Kanza, a grueling 13-plus-hour event. Ryan frequently works with athletes on training their guts to better handle food during events. He shared some of his strategies with Chris. I feel like we um, talked a little bit about it when, when I talked to you about training for Dirty Kanza and, mm-hmm. uh, and helping your helping your uh, system get used to loading it with more carbohydrates than it's used to, stuff like that. Yeah, that sort of brings in the, the just the metabolic piece and I guess having that, uh, the, that metabolic component to it where we tested you and we knew sort of what you were burning. So it was, it was um, easier to suggest, you know, range for you to be in. So, so we'll see that with athletes that come in where, um, you know, say Ironman athletes are pretty typical around Boulder and, uh, and actually one, one athlete, uh, earlier this week, uh, or last week, I should say, um, that's talking with, they're already consuming 400 plus calories an hour on the, on the bike and on the run. And, you know, they're still, they're still experiencing that bonking sensation on the run. So some of it is, you know, looking at their gut is, fairly well trained to handle a lot of it, but, um, we were able to identify more, you know, on the pacing side and, and what can we do to, to bring in more carbohydrate at that point by changing the types of food that they're eating. So if we think about training the gut, we need to get a high amount of carbohydrate in. So while this athlete was getting, you know, 400 or so calories in a lot of those calories weren't necessarily from carbohydrate because it was, you know, there were bars and things like that coming in. So some fat, some protein was, was built in there. So, um, part of that training in the gut is getting, getting the athlete used to consuming the right types of foods and, and, uh, the right types of carbohydrates where that, that'll allow them to get to a higher, uh, ingestion rate. So is that, is that, um, in part considering this, the sources of the carbohydrates or, yeah, yeah, going maybe going away from say a, a bar that's that's rich in fat and protein that they, which they don't really need as much of at that time. And if we find that they have this high carbohydrate oxidation rate, they just need more carbohydrate coming into the body. We might say, hey, let's let's take this bar out, or maybe just do half of it, you know, over this hour. But then let's find jelly beans or gummy bears or something that's more rich in carbohydrate that's going to allow them to get that intake up there. But then we do have to build in the, uh, that time component to test it out. And I think it's still a common pitfall for athletes to wait until, you know, three to four weeks before their big event. And then they 
say, oh, well, no, I just need to eat more, but we need to do that farther out. So yeah, we'll, we'll practice that. And, you know, this time of year is great. We're all have athletes go out and, and do a long ride. So, hey, just fuel with this carbohydrate. We'll say, take this much per hour and, and see how your stomach responds to it. You know, you're talking about the off season, the off season, the off season yeah. is the right time to, to mm-hmm. practice this stuff, not right before your, your big right. event. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, what, what do you mean more specifically by training the gut? What are you trying to do? So trying to get, just get the body used to processing that amount of food. You know, some athletes have a tendency to either get behind on fueling and then try to catch up. And then if, if they already have sort of, they're in a dehydrated state, their gut's already challenged. And then they, they put this big bolus of carbohydrate in there and then that's that could lead to some gi distress um you know or if they're just not consuming enough throughout then that will get a certain outcome from that so it's more just getting the athlete used to saying okay we are we're recommending 60 to 70 grams of carbohydrate for you and if you're normally taking in half that then we need to give give it a give it time it's a stepwise process you can't go from a to b right away or else there will be some digestive issues most yeah. likely mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the hydration piece i think has to fall in line with that because we can throw a lot of food in the gut but if we're dehydrated or not handling the hydration piece then uh probably still experience gi distress so we have to sort of pair those two together mm-hmm. let's get back to the show i'm gonna jump down a, a quick tangent but just something else to bring up or ask you about how do you feel about a lot of this mm-hmm. research coming out now about looking at the, the microflora balance? Because you're seeing things like uh, higher lactobacillus, I can never pronounce this, lactobacillus, increases mm-hmm. SGLT1 expression. You've seen benefits of the microflora to improving intestinal uh, uh, integrity. Um, and I know you've been doing some research on, on green tea powder, correct? Yeah, um, I mean, this is, I, I think it's really early stages, to be honest, for this, uh, this sort of research. I think it is very clear that it plays a role, but where it comes to manipulating it or changing it, um, it's, it's a whole different kettle of fish, I think, um, because we, we don't really know what, what to give to, uh, to change it in our favor. And maybe the same uh bacteria will also have different effects in different people so i think there's there's still many many questions that are unanswered and at the moment i don't think we know enough to to say ah oh, this is really what we should um this is really what we should take i think where um the the research probably most advanced is in the sort of the direction of immune function but even that area is relatively unexplored so I find that at the moment, I still find it too difficult to really draw firm conclusions about it and, and come up with sound advice. No, it's a complex subject. Like you said, changing it in beneficial ways yeah. is tough. And even if you're taking dramatic levels of probiotics, they show that uh, even, even when you do change it, it can reverse back within a matter of days. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tough area yeah. of research. What about L-glutamine? Does that have anything, uh, is that helpful in, in terms of reducing GI distress? Yeah, L-glutamine has been, is a supplement that's been uh, very popular for a, for a long period of time for various reasons. It's also been linked to um, GI problems or helping to prevent it. A bit of the theory is that the glutamine is a, is a really good fuel for, for the uh, GI tract, but I haven't really seen any, any evidence that uh, L-glutamine 
will really reduce GI symptoms. And I know people that uh, that have tried uh, low dose, high doses of L-glutamine, and they still had the uh, the same uh, <laughs> complaints that they had before. So I'm I'm not convinced. I haven't seen evidence in the in the literature either. So since you're not familiar, uh, Oscar, we do uh, we like to put our guests on the clock at the end of the show. We all go, we all, all take a turn. We give you 60 seconds to sort of summarize what we've talked about today. Give our listeners a very concise takeaway from the episode. So I'll put you on the clock. Got one minute. What would you say are the biggest takeaways from this episode? I think some of the biggest takeaways are that GI problems are very common. We don't know exactly what uh, what causes them, but they're ex- extremely annoying. One of the best ways to deal with them might be to uh, to train the gut at least as, as far as nutrition uh, goes, we can train the gut by uh, practicing race strategies, taking slightly larger amounts of carbohydrate, larger amounts of fluid uh, than normal, and the, uh, the gut will just adapt like the muscle will adapt over time. Um, so and that is a strategy to, uh, to at least tolerate uh, race nutrition a little bit uh, better. Um, of course, there are other reasons for uh, GI problems, um, but they're very difficult to tackle with nutrition. Now, we also talked about optimizing carbohydrate delivery. We uh, we saw that with uh, different durations of events, you need different amounts of carbohydrate. With the longer duration, anything over two and a half hours, um, we would like to push the carbohydrate intake to 90 grams per hour. But um, that can only be done really when the uh, um, the carbohydrate that you're taking is a mixture of glucose and fructose, ideally um, in a ratio around two to one. Um, if you take that ratio, then you, we don't saturate the glucose. Uh, well, we still saturate the tra- glucose transporter, but we can actually get more carbohydrate into the body. And studies have shown that increased carbohydrate absorption and oxidation can also have a positive effect on performance. Very good. Trevor, what would you like to add? I've got two. First, Swedish fish. I knew that was coming. You, I knew it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. You're so predictable. That leads to my second point, which is... Nerds. No. No. <laughs> you can have nerds because you were eating all mine on the weekend. <laughs> yes. Uh, moving on. So moving on, Swedish fish leads to an important point of health. We're, we're talking about performance here. But the more you can do this in healthy ways, the better. You know, this is a running joke with me, and I love my Swedish fish, but the truth of the matter is there's a lot healthier ways to accomplish the same thing. Mm-hmm. Chris? I guess uh, this is this is something maybe Oscar has already touched upon a couple times, but I'd like to reiterate just sort of practicing this stuff well before race day, not in race day, but getting to know what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what ratios work for you, what products work for you well ahead of time and and not to experiment in the two or three days leading up to a race or and certainly not within a race. I think the word that you used was very, very appropriate. These things are annoying, but uh, you can, you can find ways it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, uh, individuals bring their own problems 
and it's a lot of trial and error sometimes to figure it out, but you just have to be somewhat methodical about it and, and uh, patient and persistent. So yeah, that's what I would end with. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Asker Eukendrup, Katie Compton, Colby Pierce, Ryan Kohler, and Chris Case, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.